Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we are on the phone with a special guest of ours, Sandra Kellis, all the way calling in from Northern California. How are you doing today, Sandra? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing great. Sandra, for our listeners at home, I know you and I have talked a little bit before we got recording here, and I know you have a blog online, and and we kind of got introduced to you from your blog. And so we love sharing stories of inspiration and stories of hope and anything related, um, not necessarily to pancreatic cancer, uh, but just stories of inspiration as a whole, because we've had other people on our podcast that haven't been touched by this disease, but you have this condition which is pancreatic divisum. And I'd love for you to share, first of all, what that is with our listeners at home. Okay, um, if it is okay, I'm gonna have my husband explain it. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Okay, his name is Matt, he's right here. Okay, perfect. Hello. Hey Matt. Hey, how are you? Good, thanks for joining us on the Project Purple Podcast. She's never done one of these and she's a little nervous, so. No, that's okay. I'm gonna help her out. Uh, so pancreas divisum is uh, it's a congenital defect, and I think it affects roughly 16 million people, and it doesn't always result in um, chronic pancreatitis or any issues at all. But what happens is when the fetus is forming in the womb, as if the pancreas forms in two pieces, and the pancreatic duct doesn't line up, and it creates a uh, secondary duct. So instead of having just the one duct of the pancreas that drains into the, you know, the main bile duct and then into the duodenum, you end up with two ducts, and the bilary duct from the liver ends up draining into the smaller divisum duct. So the outlet of the pancreas, um, you know, so it's got multiple outlets to the duodenum, as opposed to most people who just have the one or they have a small minor. Yep. So she has the second one and very small. And, um, and again, the divisum itself isn't a, a problem. It just can make chronic pancreatitis come, uh, come quicker with other conditions. So Matt, because of this condition, Sandra now has chronic pancreatitis. Yes, she had a a gallbladder. It all started in June of of 2017. Mm -hmm. And she'd been hospitalized in in her early 20s for severe abdominal pain, but there was no um, real diagnosis or conclusions. But in 2017, June of 2017, she ended up with uh, severe upper abdominal pain on the right side. Yep. And went to the ER, did all the normal scans and everything, and nothing was found. Ended up at University of uh, California, San Francisco. They did an MRI and found it, the divisum. So they started looking into that, and just before they went to do an ERCP, they did an endoscopic, endoscopic ultrasound and found material in her gallbladder. So they ended up removing her gallbladder, and they found several hundred one to two millimeter stones. And the thought is that one of those stones, since they were draining into the divisum duct, plugs the outlet of that duct and cause the pancreatic uh, flare-up back up through the Y and out the other duct. That's so fascinating. How long would you say for like 10 years you were? I know you said to when she was younger. When I was in my 20s, um, I oh, had in your the 20s. Okay. episode and it, was, it only lasted about a week. And then I was perfectly fine from, I, I, I guess it was around 22 or uh-huh. 23. And then I was perfectly fine up until uh, about 31. Wow. I, I would think, though, when you're in your 20s, you know, your early 20s, you're not necessarily thinking about something like this, right? I mean, and I, I don't mean that in any no, disrespectful no. way at all, Sandra. I think it's just a matter of like, hey, you're young, you're, you know, and this is something I've talked to other 
another group about that actually does a lot of self-awareness with 15 to 40 year olds within being diagnosed with cancer because a lot of people in those ages just play it off like, ah, you know, I, I worked out, you know, my back's bothering me. I, I, I worked out really hard, you know, this weekend right. or this week or, oh, I ate something or I drank something or I partied too hard uh, because that's the lifestyle or that's how the culture is. So they don't necessarily have that awareness in terms of, oh, yeah. wait, I should, you know, go to the doctor. I don't feel good. Unless it's like really severe. And so creating awareness around that is really critical. Um, so it's really fascinating to me just hearing that, you know, like, hey, and you're 22, 23 and you had it for a week. And then, you know, just I know science is not up to where we need to be. And you know, when I say science, I mean like, you know, going to the ER, or, you know, general practitioners that like, hey, if you have abdominal pain or you have these symptoms like, oh, it's this. Um, they usually just kind of pass it off as you ate something bad or it's just something inconclusive that, you know, if it comes back, come back and see us kind of thing. Right. I was pretty carefree. I ate whatever I wanted. Um, I didn't, I was not exercising. I, I would dance and that was pretty yeah. much my exercise. But that's rigorous. Um, dance is rigorous. I mean, it's not like you're sedentary sitting on the couch eating Doritos. I mean, you're, you're moving, and, right. you know, so I, uh, my wife is a dancer and I know she did it for years and, um, that, that was a lot of activity. I mean, you're, you're actually, you know, and some of these people who do it professionally, they burn a lot of calories. So it, it is very active. Oh yeah. So now when you went to UCSF, was that the first time yeah. dealing with them or was that, how did you get there? Um, we had actually been, um, after we left the emergency room, um, we were referred to another hospital around here and they, and they misdiagnosed it and we weren't really satisfied with what we were getting. So my husband looked up UCSF and found out that, you know, they were specializing in this and, um, he had friends and coworkers who had gone there dealing with the same thing. So we reached out to my primary care and she gave us the information and we booked it. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, something that's important, just listening to that story, because so many people don't tend to go to a major center. And I've been fortunate. I've met some of the staff there at UCSF, um, you know, in terms of their pancreatic cancer folks and the pancreas disease program that they have there. And I know they are building and they've got some talented young people and some really seasoned veterans there on the West Coast and, and there in San Francisco. Amazing. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was there not too long ago last year, actually, Sandra. And, you know, we were we were in discussions on a particular project and, you know, we were able to bring in Kaiser Permanente into the mix. Um, we also brought in some folks from Stanford and some other folks from the West Coast. And so they are really doing some really cool things there at the center. And, and you know, but I, I think the biggest thing is, especially for our listeners at home, and, and I can't tell you how many times, you know, and I, I went through this experience with my dad. My dad was very comfortable at a local hospital. That was a good hospital, but it wasn't a specialty center. And I think that's the one thing, right. you know, from hearing you, you know, talk. And that's why I brought up the question, why did you go there? Because I think that's really critical with anything that is really niche or that is specialized, I should say, not niche, but something that is so specialized like pancreatic disease, pancreatic cancer, these things are critical 
to be seen by a specialist and not generalist. Um, and I, I think the lesson to be learned here um, with this story is that, you know, if people are experiencing this, there are centers around the country that do specialize in this. And I know from reading your blog, um, you mentioned you might be taking a trip sometimes, which uh, sometime soon, which we'll get into here in a minute. But, you know, don't stay at a local place if you don't get the right information or that you don't feel comfortable and you know something is still wrong you know seek advice and she was actually di- she was actually diagnosed locally with functional dyspepsia uh. and they told us to buy a juicer and make a follow up appointment for 3 months later that's and, crazy um, yeah so we so immediately you, went to UCSF, so you- but because they had the diagnosis locally um, it made the referral slide down on the list because we'd already seen a GI that gave us a, a diagnosis. And then within the first day we were at UCSF, they started from scratch and they said, no, you need an MRI. And they got us in the next day for an MRI and found the visum. And from there, it was just kind of off to the races. So did you guys, like when that guy, when the doctor says go buy a juicer, like w- do you guys sit there and just like laugh or was it just like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be a wise guy here or anything, but was it? Yeah. No, I couldn't believe it. I, I was in shock. I was like, this is, this, I've already dropped so much weight and now, you know, he wants me to buy a juicer and I, yeah, I was in, I was in shock. We were a little proactive on it before we had seen him. Because when we first saw him, he wanted her to get an EGD, so they did that. And then once she did the EGD, we started logging every single thing she ate. And we'd log her pain before she ate, her pain after she ate, 30 minutes after she ate, along with the nausea. And then we would also log the macros for everything she was eating, fats, carbs, and proteins. So we had, by the time we saw him and he said functional dyspepsia, we had a log for a month showing that anytime she had anything with more than two grams of fat, she'd be she'd be on the ground crying. Mm. So after he said functional dyspepsia, we broke out the log and it's like severe abdominal pain in the underneath the uh, right rib, upper quadrant. Every time she has fat, she's in, she's crying. That's gallbladder. You know, let's, let's start looking at the gallbladder. Yeah. And, uh, and he wasn't really on board with that. So we left. It's so frustrating though, guys, like in this day and age, that you know we hear this uh, often that people have to go through this kind of i mean i guess merry-go-round or this this rigmarole as i would call it just this non-stop of validation in terms of being sick and and what what goes on it's just very frustrating to me that we live in this great country but you know this this system is so and, and it doesn't happen to everyone, so I, I do have to kind of get off my rant here a little bit. But it, it's still frustrating that this uh, this happens in this day and age. I mean, we're not talking about this being 1980. And you guys are in a pretty – I mean, you're in Northern California. It's a pretty educated part of the world. It's an affluent part of the world. So it's not as if you're in a, in a different part of the world or a different part of the country where you don't have access to some really intelligent okay. and good people and good systems. So yeah, it's, it's frustrating. So I apologize that you guys had to go through that. So now you go through this process and where, where are you, where are you guys today? We are, so we decided against um, the university of Minnesota. Um, we read all about it and read amazing things. Even my doctor um, was just raving about it. He actually came from there mm-hmm. and we 
just thought for our situation, we would much rather stay at UCSF. I, I just, I can't be without my family for that long. I'm very close with my boys. I have three amazing animals and, you know, my husband, and I, I just can't be away from my family. What was the recommendation to go to Minnesota and have uh, treatment or surgery, or what were they, at this point, what were they, what options were oh, they giving? They're, they're, doing a, they're going to do a total pancreatectomy with auto out of the transplant. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're, they're going to take the pancreas out. She had uh, five ERCPs in 2018. In May, she was hospitalized for five days after the first ERCP, and they, they, you know, they cut on the, the outlet duct to open it up a little bit. And then in June, we went for another ERCP, and they made one more small incision on the outlet duct. Well, there was a hidden artery in there. So um, within uh, three hours, she had lost two liters of blood. Oh my God. We ended up in ICU with transfusions, and they did an emergency ERCP that night and uh, clipped the, the artery. And then a couple days after that, she was in severe pain. We were still in the hospital. Um, and they did a CT of her abdomen just to make sure that during the second ERCP, there was no damage done to the pancreas. And they found uh, three pulmonary embolisms in her lungs. So they put her on blood thinners. And um, at this point, it had been eight days since she had eaten. So they placed a NG tube you know, through her nose and down into her intestines to start feeding her and bypassing the pancreas. Yeah. Well, the tube knocked off the clips that were stopping the bleed. Ugh. So now she was bleeding internally again and full of blood thinners. So we had to wait 17 to 22 hours for the blood thinners to wear off. And she was in ICU at this point again. And um, they put her on, a, they did another ERCP and clipped everything again. And then um, from there back to ICU, a couple days after that, she had a filter placed in her inferior vena cava to stop any more blood clots from getting to her lungs. Yep. And then at, at 17 days that she hadn't eaten, they placed another tube to feed her, this time just directly into her stomach. And then at 23 days, we went home. So they're, they don't want to mess with her pancreas anymore because of the complications that she's experienced. And then in November, she was in the hospital again for 11 days and had another ERCP done. Um, and... So in the June event, like she she stopped breathing twice while she was in. She had the two bleeds plus the twice that she went into respiratory distress. And then in November, she coded, uh, they had the code blue on her again. So their solution now is just stop chasing her tail, pull the pancreas out before there's too much damage to it so they can still harvest the islet cells and then uh, put them in the liver so she can start making insulin again and not be a diabetic. That's the path we're on. That's so crazy, Matt. Just to hear you, and I'm, I'm taking notes here. So I, I got a question. During this whole time, like what's, and this is for Matt first, Sandra. Matt, what's going through your mind? Like I, I can't even fathom, but I mean, this has got to be heartbreaking, gut-wrenching. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a first responder, so. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I was actually one that called out that she wasn't breathing all three times. But um, to me, I have a lot of faith in that facility. Every time something happens, they upscaled so quickly. I mean, it got to the point where if she sneezed, doctors were in the room. And uh, at one point, I think we had um, just 
rounding on us every day. We had 30 doctors every day rounding on us. We had a hematology group, a surgical group, the GI group, the medicine group, different surgeons uh, you know, in interventional radiology. I mean, I was obviously scared, very scared, but I knew that we were in the right place. I mean, that's what these people do. They, they, they saved a couple of my friends' lives. They were dealing with pancreas issues, and they responded to everything. So while I was obviously, I was having a hard time, I knew that it would work out. Something I, I tell Sandy is that I've never had a problem, and I couldn't say that that was last week. Eventually, this will be last week. So I just kept that in my head and held her hand and tried to move through. It's a pretty optimistic view, though, Matt. I mean, I know hindsight's always twenty twenty, and I commend you uh, for thinking that way. I mean, I always say when we talk to our survivors and fighters and you know, regardless whether it's pancreatic cancer or any other disease or ailment, like there's something special about that. And I, I appreciate you sharing that story with us and also your feelings. And, and I mean, that's special stuff, man. Sandra, for you, I mean, I know this is probably a little bit different since you're battling, you're going through this. And I don't know how much you, I don't know if you were sedated as, as well during this whole process. Um, but you know, how did you get through all this? Because that's a hell of a lot of stuff that happened in 23 days. It's just, and not to eat is just, I, I mean, I would think mentally that would have been, probably been pretty hard to do. But, you know, maybe, I don't know, because of the pain and everything, it probably didn't come into, I, I you know, for me, and I'm not trying to be a wise guy again, but like, if I go like half a day without eating, I get like a headache, you know? So just the audience listening at home, I don't think people can fathom that though, you know, like not eating anything for 23 days. And I know when you're sick, it's, it's different. Like you're sick, you don't feel right. Um, you know, you probably are not up to eating anything at all when you're sick and you're not feeling right, but still 23 days is a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, during it, it, it was hard. Um, but I think the worst part was when I came home. After the stay in the hospital? Yeah. Um, I would remember things that I didn't remember at the time. And, you know, one of the times that, um, when the second bleed happened, my husband wasn't there. He was here in Vacaville with my boys. And we live about an hour and a half, two hours away from San Francisco. Yeah. So, you know, like, I called him and I told him something's wrong something's wrong I need you here and you know he got there as soon as he could but the whole time I just kept thinking you know I was so afraid that I was not my husband wasn't gonna see me one last time I'm very very close with my family and just the thought of losing them or them having to go on without me is just it's so hard I wrote both my boys and my husband all letters when I got home just, just in case I don't make it through this. So I think that's really the hardest part of this whole thing. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I know that uh, I can't fathom what you've gone through. And I don't think many of our listeners at home can. But... Um, you know, you're here, you're on our podcast, and I know we've never met in person, but you sound, you know, uh, you sound good, 
And I, I know that they, uh, you know, I will leave you with this on that note is it's, I think life is not about staying on top. It's about how we get up when life knocks us down. And clearly you've been knocked down a lot in the last six months, um, but you keep getting back up. And that's something that's really special, Sandra and Matt, because um, you're in this with, with her as well. You know, um, that I can say for doing what I've done for the last eight years of running an organization and dealing with, you know, pancreatic cancer. And, and you know, it's a, it's a beast. It's evil. Nine, 90, nine out of ten people will pass from it most within the first three to four months. Some make it to six months. Um, that's, a, that's a hard reality of the disease. But uh, those who keep getting back up and keep fighting every day. Uh, there's really something special about that. And, and you're a warrior. So you're here today and, and you know, um, it sounds like you've got kind of a plan here to kind of keep this, this thing at bay, we hope, you know, and you're with a really good team at UCSF. Uh, and I know they're, they're networked throughout the country. So um, I have all the faith in, in your doctors there, you know, keeping you, um, you know, hopefully as pain-free as possible and also keeping you, you know, up, you know, getting up when you're, when you get knocked down and it sounds like Matt's, you know, your number one fan. So that's probably the most important thing. And, you know, all your, your family and your boys, you know, too, as well. So that's, that's really the special stuff and all of this, Sandra. So thank you for sharing oh, that my with boys, us. My boys are absolutely amazing. They know what medicines to give me at what time. I mean, even my eight-year-old, every time I eat something, he's, you know, always questioning, should I take my enzymes? Yeah. Um, I walk with a walker. It feels like most of the time now. Um, but all the, always, they're always right beside me, making sure I don't fall. I mean, things that, you know, an eight-year-old and a 17-year-old should not have to do. They are just so advanced. Yeah, they're amazing. Our, uh, our little one, the eight, our eight-year-old, uh, his name is Kodiak. He was actually with her um, the last time she had to go with an a in an ambulance, so it was just her and him at home. I was at work, and he calls me. But she, you know, he has his own phone, but he doesn't call me often. And, um, but, you know, I see him calling me on my call. I get work. I know that's abnormal, so I answer it. And he says, Mom's in a lot of pain. I don't know what to do. I've given her everything I think I can give her. And uh, so we walked through it a little bit on the phone, and, and he goes into a little, you could tell he's crying, and his little voice starts cracking, and then he just pulls everything together, and he says, okay, what's the next step? And um, I think it's from an eight-year-old. So, you know, we walked through everything, and, and finally I'm like, look, you need to ask her if she needs an ambulance. And he says, Mom, do you need an ambulance? So she said, yeah. And um, I said, okay, I'm going to call 911. I'm on my way now, and I work 30 minutes from the house. So I'm, I'm on the freeway on the phone with 911 and uh, I get to the house just as they're loading her up and his little, he, he's sitting in the jump seat in the back of the rescue rig with five point harness on, little legs swinging <laughs> and uh, it's like, all right, get out of the ambulance, oh, you, you, you'll go to the hospital with, with me and they'll take her. Hops out and and um, Sandy might start crying during this part, but I'm, I gotta say it anyway. But, so they take her, and he and I, he and I grab some stuff from the house. So we're walking to the car, and he says, "Dad, I don't, uh, I don't ever want to do that again." And I said, uh, 
way for an eight-year-old to be that aware. So it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. The, these boys love her to death. Well, I always say the apples don't fall far from the tree, Matt and Sandy. So I think you, you're doing something special there with those boys. And I, I will say, I go back to my experience and dealing uh, with families that have young children. I think they are more aware than we than we know. You know, and I think people tend to family, you know, parents tend to worry about the children and the spouse, but the spouse and the children adapt pretty quickly, you know, to times of crisis, usually. Not always, but usually. But I think that that's a, te that's a testament to you guys, though. You know, you guys are doing it right, um, whatever you're doing, you know, because the kids, in, in this case, you know, your eight, soon to be nine year old gets it and understands it. So I've got a question. So, do you have chronic so you have pancreatitis then now then right is that is that correct or incorrect yes yes i do and for our listeners at home that's just a an inflammation which is extremely painful um to the pancreas um that you know makes life really miserable i've had some friends that have had that issue and um, a good friend of mine, uh, he was in law enforcement, and he's been in and out of the hospital with, with bouts of pancreatitis, and, and it's just been miserable. So has there been talk, because one of the things we do know with people who do have chronic pancreatitis, if it goes long enough, that that will sometimes accelerate into cancer, pancreatic cancer. Has anyone mentioned anything along those lines at all to either of you guys at all? Yes, it's been discussed with us by our GI. Yeah. And um, I mean, we're we're fortunate in that, you know, a lot of people deal with this for 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's no guarantee. The first there's no guarantee that it happened, but I know that, I just know that, that, that you know, from uh, from our standpoint, when we look at it from a... What we've done some research in early detection, and you know the pancreatitis cohort or that population of people who have pancreatitis, it's a small percentage, but there are some people that you know who have it long enough that eventually will be diagnosed with the disease. So not to say that it's a precursor for everyone, but it's it's a risk, you know. Yeah, that's why we're uh, one of the reasons we're so on board with just removing the pancreas. <laughs> we understand the possibility of having fetal diabetes afterwards. And with the auto transplant being as successful as it's been throughout the country or throughout the world, you know, the, the diabetes concern isn't that great. You know, she's never had any kind of diabetes, uh, diabetic indications or yep. pre-diabetes or anything like that. And um, if, you know, I mean, her pancreas is what hurts. If her pancreas goes through an incinerator, it can't hurt anymore. Yeah, not right? true. I mean, get it out, stop the pain, quality of life comes back. I've got a question here that just came to mind. So through all of this, have they ever, I wonder, Sandra and Matt, so I know Sandra said it didn't start to bother her until she was like 22, 23, and then it came back when she was 31. Has anyone scientifically said, well, yeah, that's kind of the, the age when this happens, or what was the catalyst maybe that, that started that aggravation at 22, 23? Or could it possibly have been like when you were 50? You know, like I, I'm just kind of interested about that. If anyone's ever asked that or given you the answer, I'm sure maybe you guys have asked the question, you know, like why didn't this happen when she was 16? Our GI is, is actually, he's, he's pretty amazing. Like I said, he was part of the team. 
causing your pancreatitis, and they want to find out. So she's gone through all this genetic testing and things like that, and I actually have a appointment tomorrow to discuss with a geneticist because it might be a hereditary cause. Yeah. And um, we do know that one of her cousins has the has, had, has pancreas disease and has had pancreatitis with flare-ups since she was 20, and she's 35 now. Um, so they are trying to pinpoint what it is or what's causing the pancreatitis. And, um, but, you know, there are so many things. She's not a drinker. She's, you know, a big drinking day for her would be, you know, the equivalent of two beers in a total day. Yeah. So that would be a big day. Drinking. And, but I've not had anything to drink since June of 2017. Yeah, there's been no alcohol consumption since then. It's... And uh, it, it really is starting to look like it's genetics. So, like I said, tomorrow we, we meet the geneticist uh, for the second time, or maybe third time, and now they actually have, they run all the DNA testing, and um, because there's a, there's a correlation between a certain set of genes um, and breast cancer and pancreatitis. And several members of her family have had breast cancer. And then she has one family member that's got pancreatitis. So they're looking to see what kind of overlaps there are to determine whether or not this is all being caused by genetics. Yeah, I mean, there's some fascinating work being done in the genetic side. And, you know, I know for us, you know, we've invested heavily in, in two clinics that are strictly looking at the BRCA gene. Uh, well, not strictly, but they are looking at the BRCA gene mutation as one of the primary population pools um, to do early detection and early surveillance and, and stuff along those lines with the BRCA gene mutation. And so we've been uh, heavily investing in projects for the last couple years with regards to that. So there are more, and I, I think the NIH, which sets the insurance protocols, just recently came out, or maybe it was AACR, um, and this is more related on the cancer front, to make sure that all centers now test people for genetic mutations in certain cancers, and pancreatic cancer being one of them. I thought I had seen some something along those lines. I mean, we typically, not typically, but we always recommend families that contact us to get genetic testing because genetics today looks a lot different than it did five years ago for this disease. And so I think as a whole, genetics is playing a bigger part in you know, disease and prevention and also maintenance of certain diseases as well. Because I know with pancreatic cancer in particular, if you are BRCA positive, there's actually a treatment protocol that when patients are given that treatment protocol actually do very well um, in terms of quality of life and in terms of duration of life as well. And in some cases, the tumors are suppressed where they're not even available on imaging, you know, that they, they just kind of disappear. So the genetics piece is really, really critical, I would say, in, in disease management and control. And I think moving forward, I hope that we see more and more happening, you know, with regards to genes and genetics and our makeup. Hopefully we get to a place where, you know, we can have protocols and treatments and things in place to manage these types of diseases that are genetically, you know, predisposition, which possibly could be the case, you know, for a lot of things that are going on today in, in medicine and in health. So, but it is important. Oh, yeah, I was actually, I was reading an article um, um, about a month ago of a, a 
Yeah. And I mean, essentially, they genetically modified the baby and they got rid of the, the disease, uh, the, the ailment that the baby yeah. was going to be born with. I mean, and and my hope would be that they can identify these things and and actually treat them in that way, so that it's it's not a segregation. It's like, oh, the, you know, your your genes, your your baby's genes are showing that you know they're, they're going to be at high risk for pancreatitis or pancreatic cancer or Alzheimer's or whatever it is, and they can apply the therapy in utero, so that the babies just have a normal life, it just grows without those issues. That would be to me, that'd be the ideal. Yeah, it's it's it, it, I, I can't agree with you more, Matt. And I hope we get there at some point in our lifetime. Um, I just hope it's sooner than later because, you know, I, I know that medicine is a big business. You're in it as a first responder. As you see it day in day out, and you guys are both in it today and what you guys are battling. And so, but I I hope at some point we get into a situation where we're able to manage these types of genetics. Um, you know, issues, ailments, diseases, better, you know, I would think from a dollars and cents standpoint that there would be, you know, an initiative, you know, if you were able to lower, you know, a genetic disease in terms of cost that it costs insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, you know, prior to even making it to that point. You know, it'd probably be a huge win-win across the board, right? You'd have quality of life for people, and then you'd have lower, you know, insurance premiums and dollars spent towards these diseases. But um, I hope, I hope we get there sooner than later. I mean, that's, uh, I think that's a push and a hope of a lot of people in this business. That's why we're doing what we're doing, you know, on the research side, you know, with some of these scientists to, to make those advancements. So I really hope we get there. I have a question for Sandra. What advice, and, and our audience is pretty broad. I mean, we've got people from all walks of life that are battling all sorts of ailments. And like I said in the opening, we love sharing stories of inspiration. And, and your story has been amazing to hear you talk about, you know, being in the hospital that long and, and you know, just to keep getting back up when you get knocked down. But what advice would you give someone going through what you've just explained and what you've gone through and you're still going through it but let's say there's someone listening at home that you know has been diagnosed with the same disease that you have and the same ailment what advice would you give them um i would definitely say to surround themselves with a support system a really strong support system i couldn't i wouldn't be in the mental state that i am now without my family and friends around me. They call, they check in on me. Even my pharmacist will call and see if I need anything refilled, how I'm doing. I have a very, very strong support system. And then I would also say, stay busy. I just recently started my blog and within the last two weeks, I've, I've seen a difference in myself. It was, you know, I, I'm unable to work um, because we are a blended family. We share custody with the boys, so we only get them part-time. Um, my husband works a lot, so, you know, I would be home by myself. I'm unable to drive because of all the different medications. And so, you know, being locked inside the house for months, you know, except getting out to go to the doctor's appointment is very, very hard. It's very hard mentally and spiritually and I mean, it's just so hard. And so 
so getting writing and sharing my experiences and getting it out has definitely, definitely helped. So let's talk about your blog a little bit, and thank you for sharing that. I, I just before we get into that, I can't agree with you more. You know, having a, no one fights alone, and and we say that on what we do um, with our programs that we provide and aid and blankets and connecting fighters. And I know you and I talked about hopefully connecting you with some people in your area before we started recording, which I think is so critical, but then staying busy and and you created this blog. So what was the reason behind the blog? And we're going to share with everyone listening at home the links and how they can find out more about your blog and and follow your journey. But, you know, what were you a writer before or was it what was kind of the idea behind the blog? No, I've actually never written before. Um, (laughs) And I'm sure that people who read my blogs can definitely tell that there's some missing words every once in a while and <laughs> punctuation's not accurate. But I actually started because um, my husband was talking to me about it. And he had actually talked to me about it maybe a month or two ago. And, you know, I was just kind of like, you know, that's not really for me. You know, I see all these professional blogs and that's definitely not me. Um, I didn't even know how to start. And so one night, because I, unfortunately, I'm, I stay up at all hours now, and I just got on one night and found a website on how to create the website for a blog and just kind of took off from there. What was the inspiration about it? Was it just because you couldn't sleep and you just wanted, or, you know, was it trying to comfort yourself yeah. in the fight or was it to maybe inspire other people? Um, originally, I think it was, you know, help for myself, um, just getting it out there. Because, you know, like I said, I don't, with my kids and my husband gone a lot, I don't really talk to that many people besides my animals. But, you know, and so I have so much stuff in my head. And it was nice to be able to just get it out finally. And then it turned into, all my life I've always wanted to help people. Um, I got into the medical field and... I had wanted for so long to be a part of like a women's shelter helping in there. And through this, I'm seeing that, you know, I'm reaching people that I don't even know now and they're learning more. They're um, learning about the different disease or the disease and how it affects the body because so many of my family and friends don't even know exactly. And so by posting about it, you know, how my day to day life goes and, you know, people actually see that, you know, there's good days, but the day-to-day struggle. Well, and, you know, on those good days, I, I really make sure and post my good days and, like, my family outings with um, the kids and everything just to show that, you know, you can smile. It's not always bad. It's hard, but it's not always bad. Well, I want to say this first, Sandra. I think what you're doing is very courageous. And I commend you for having the gumption to do it because you don't have to. You don't have to share your story and you don't have to go into the details of your personal life for the public to read about. And, you know, whether they judge or they just have an opinion on, which they shouldn't. But I think that's something that, you know, something that's personal. I always commend people for coming out regardless of their mission 
and sharing their personal life with the public because it's now public it's not personal anymore right so you're you're sharing of yourself and that's a very selfless act and i think you know the world needs more people like that and you know i think i've always kind of been of the school of thought of leading by example and so i think that is a, a very courageous thing as i said to do and i thank you for doing that because the more people that come out and share those types of stories, one, you do, one, you inspire a lot of people in doing so. And you've inspired me by, you know, just having this conversation. And I know it's not an easy conversation um, because you're going down, you know, and, and remembering about a very bad time in your life. But also, and I've always said this to our, our guests. There's going to be someone on the other side listening to this that might be where you are and might not have the courage or they might have the same condition. It might not be tomorrow. It might not be, you know, in a month. It could be in a couple years, but because they listened to your story because you decided to open up and share your story is the reason why hopefully they go through their journey in a much more positive way because you shared your story. So thank you for doing that. Um, and I commend you again for your courage because you don't have to, you know, you don't have to tell your story. And, and so thank you to, to, you know, your entire family because it doesn't happen alone. And, and thank you to Matt as well for, and the boys for everything that they've assisted on, on this journey so far. So for our listeners at home, what's the best way to get in touch with you via the blog. I know the blog, now the blog has kind of a login, I believe, right? Is that right? Um, oh, yes, if you um, if you sign up for it, yes. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you give our but audience... Yeah, you can you can you can sign up for updates and stuff like that. So, um, why don't you give our audience listening home the web site? I believe because uh, you, do you have a Facebook page too on that, or is it just strictly on the web? Um, it's on the website, but there's also links to the Facebook and, and the um, Pinterest board as well. Okay, awesome. So, what's the website if listeners at home want to kind of follow your journey and connect with you? It's uh, my journey through pancreaticdisease.com. My journey through pancreaticdisease.com. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Sandra and Matt, you guys have been great to have on the Project Purple podcast, and I will leave you guys with this. Um, and I said it before, but I, I think it's so impactful here, is life is not about being on top, but how you get up when you get knocked down. And your story of just being knocked down and, and just the spirit and the courage that you've had, Sandra and Matt, because you guys are in this together to battle this has just been inspiring. And I appreciate you guys. I sincerely mean this. You didn't have to come on the podcast. You didn't have to start a blog. But that takes a lot of gumption and it takes a lot of courage to do that. So thank you for all you've done. I look forward to following your journey. And if there's anything that we can do to help, by all means, don't hesitate to ask. Well, thank you so much. We really enjoyed being on the show today. Thank you, guys. That's a wrap. Thank you.